0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Chef. Dan Foss is Director of Public and Industry Affairs. Before we get started, you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. I'm really excited today to be talking about New York City, Local Law 97, and that law's impact on the building retrofit market. And I'm even more excited to be joined by our guest, John Mandike. John is the CEO of Urban Green Council, and I'll let him introduce the organization. But he started as CEO in 2018, its first ever CEO, after a 25-year career as Chief Sustainability Officer at United Technologies Corporation. That's carrier for everybody out there. He's also visiting scientist at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and adjunct professor at the University of Connecticut School of Business. And by the way, he's an author of a book called Food Foolish. So, John, I am really excited to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Please tell us about Urban Green Council and uh, what you guys are doing in New York City and really around the world.
1: Well, thanks, John, it's great to be uh, on the show. Thanks for including us. Um, Urban Green is a nonprofit environmental organization. Our mission is to transform buildings for a sustainable future in New York City and around the world. So what that means is we work on lowering the carbon footprint of buildings. And increasingly, we see New York City as the ideal global laboratory for climate policy. And so while we're based in New York, our view is really global. And that is, we want to import the best ideas into New York to make sure that we're getting our climate policy right. And when we come up with innovative ideas, we're going to actively share them around the world so we can get to more global solutions.
0: I'm really fascinated by New York City and particularly Local Law 97. And I'm really interested to see how building owners are going to adapt, react, and innovate to kind of meet that challenge. But before we jump into the impacts of it, can you introduce us to Local Law 97 and, and kind of let us know what it is and why it's so important?
1: Sure. Let's start at the last part of your question on why it's so important. New York has $3 trillion of insured coastal properties. So let me just say that again. It's a big number. $3 trillion of insured coastal properties. That's twice the GDP of Canada. That's what's at risk to climate change and rising waters. Um, So we got a lot at stake in New York from a risk perspective. And climate change um, is not theory in New York. If you walk down New York, any street in New York City, you're not gonna find many climate deniers, if any, because we've seen the effects. Uh, New York Harbor is up uh, one foot in the last 100 years. Rising waters uh, are disproportionately higher in our part of the world than others. And we already had a major storm event. We had Superstorm Sandy that hit New York City. It wasn't even a hurricane, it was a tropical storm when it hit, but it hit at high tide and an unusually high tide, and it left a $20 billion bill, John. So that's what's at stake, um, and that's what's important. Now, why buildings? Well, buildings represent 70% of New York City's carbon emissions. So we won't get to a low carbon future without going through buildings. So we have a law in New York to reduce carbon emissions citywide 80% by 2050. Local law 97 is the implementing law to put buildings on track to reduce their carbon emissions to hit that 80% target by 2050.
0: And, you know, it's so interesting because in New York City, like you said, 70% of its emissions come from buildings, but that's a much higher number than we see in other places. You know, we just saw California and Governor Newsom issue this, um, this executive order focusing on the transportation industry because they don't have that density there uh, and their, their emissions really do come from the auto industry. But in New York, it really is concentrated in buildings and the retrofit market really where all that carbon is stored has just been such a, a tough not to crack, but this is so uh, encouraging and and I think is really going to spur that market. But we're really just in the kind of the beginning stages of of implementation for the law. People are really starting to figure out how it's going to take shape and where it's going to go. What are some of the details that still need to be to be worked out before we kind of get to where we need to go? I'll get into the details, but back to your point about New York City's profile, you're
1: right. It's different than the typical American city, but it's not different than a large urban center. So Hong Kong, Singapore, London have a very similar profile to New York. And it really comes down to a couple of factors. One, you pointed it out, the transportation emissions in New York City just represent about 30% of our emissions. That's because we have a mass transit system that works. Uh, Last year it moved uh, nearly Two billion riders, and so that keeps the carbon uh, profile low. And the only thing that keeps the carbon profile low is we don't have a lot of industry. I mean, there aren't any factories on Park Avenue. So what's left are, are buildings, and that's the same for London and, and other large cities. So the way this law works is it places caps on uh, carbon caps on building emissions starting in 2024 that tighten in 2030. We have one million buildings in New York City. This law covers buildings that are 25,000 square feet and above, which was the urban green recommendation. When you snap the line at that level, uh, the covered population becomes 50,000 buildings. Those 50,000 buildings represent about 60% of the floor area of the city and about half of the emissions from, from the building sector. So it's not every building, uh, but it's, it's a big first start. And we know about 20, 30, 40% of what we need to know about this law. The rest of it is yet to be defined in the regulatory framework. So there is an advisory board that is guiding the department and buildings in the implementation of the law. Urban Green is a member of the advisory board and its and its working committees to look at some big issues still to be defined. So for example, the law allows for a, uh, a 10% offset yet to be defined. And so that's that's a meaningful chunk that needs to be figured out. What you know, what is that going to be? Is it going to be tree planting? Is it going to be CFC destruction? We don't know what it is, um, and so that's an example of some of the uh, areas still to be worked out in the law.
0: And yeah, I, I think there's a lot of unknowns here, but you know, it does focus on CO2 emissions, and in the retrofit market and people working in buildings to this point have really been focused on energy and efficiency. Can you talk about how the two differ, and is it a distinction without a difference, or is it a bigger deal than that? It's actually a huge
1: distinction that leads to the same place, by the way. So, you know, Urban Green's recommendation for this law was an, an energy efficiency approach. We had pulled together a convening of experts, which we called the 80 by 50 Buildings Partnership. We brought together 70 experts from 42 diverse organizations, builders, architects, labor unions, environmental groups, religious groups. We met 80 times over eight months to come up with 21 consensus recommendations for how buildings could be put on path to meet the 80 by 50 carbon reductions. The city council was actually waiting for our work. They were sending observers to our meetings and our blueprint for efficiency, the report that we published became the backbone of Local Law 97 with one big divergence. Uh, We recommended an energy efficiency approach. The city wanted a carbon bill. It gets you to the same place, but the road is completely different based on which uh, strategy you pick. The main difference is a building, when it comes to electricity, a building owner in New York controls energy. The building owner doesn't control carbon. That carbon happens sometimes hundreds of miles away at a fossil fuel, plant generating the electricity yet the building owner is financially responsible now through local law 97 for those carbon emissions so for the first time you have really buildings and the grid uh linked together in a way that's never never been done before because the makeup of that grid has an enormous consequence on the building owner's uh, financial participation in this law. And so for example, if the grid is fossil fuel based and it's a dirty grid, the building owner is gonna have to do more. If the grid is greener and has more renewable base to it, then the building owner has to do less. And so there is a, a huge distinction between Just energy and carbon and what needs to be managed with this law. Your previous question is you know, what's left to work out? Right there is a huge question on the table. You have to have a calculation, a conversion from energy to carbon uh, for this law, right? So if you burn energy, if you use energy at a building, you have to understand how much carbon that, that emits. To understand how much carbon that emits, you need to understand the carbon mix of the grid. And so there is a calculation to do that. It's called a carbon coefficient. Those calculations have been set for the 2024 cap, but they have not yet been set for the 2030 cap. And so that's a big, big item to be resolved because it gets to what I just said. Where you point that calculation will determine how much work the building owner has to do, and that's still uh, up in the air right now.
0: Just that idea of linking energy and carbon, energy used in a building too. It's to how much carbon is used to make that energy is really powerful. Because as you know, a lot of big commercial landlords and property managers and some of the most powerful people in New York City are going to be very affected by this. And there could be a lot of political pressure going forward to green the grid. And that's something we really haven't seen anywhere in this country. Absolutely. And we have uh,
1: in tandem a New York state law that is pushing the grid in that direction with very, very aggressive measures. You know, New York City doesn't regulate its grid, the state does. And so uh, you need both laws to work together, and they are. You know, we have billions and billions of dollars of contracts that have been let already for offshore wind farms to help power New York we actually have a huge hiccup in between all of this, right? So right now the New York City grid for electricity, 70% is generated uh, using fossil fuels. The other 30% roughly comes from a nuclear power plant that is closing in a matter of months. The renewables have not come online fast enough. And so we're actually gonna go to a nearly 100% fossil fuel grid before we get the renewables online. And so, we're going to take a step back before we can take a step forward.
0: Yeah, but I could definitely see a scenario where some of these very, you know, wealthy and powerful building owners and commercial landlords are, you know, really pouring money into lobbying efforts to try to get some of those renewables online to decrease the burden on their buildings and their individual buildings. So I think it could really be a paradigm shift in a couple different ways. But, you know, talking about building owners, how did they respond to the law and how are they responding now? How are they getting started kind of getting their arms around this? Well, you know, building owners get it. You know,
1: they saw the effects of superstorm Sandy. They saw the effects to the damage to their property itself. And if a property didn't get damaged, they saw the effects on the city when the city couldn't function. If the city can't function, there is no building owner that can function. And so, we need a functioning city. We need a climate resilient city. So building owners get it. There was a lot of disagreement on approach. As you can imagine, there was never disagreement that we need to do something. There was disagreement on approach. For example, what we just talked about, should it be energy or should it be carbon? That's been resolved now by the city council. So the law is the law. And so building owners are now focusing on what they do. They're quickly dividing into two camps, John. There's the 2024 camp, of the building owners that have to do something. And the way the law works, Of those 50,000 covered buildings that I mentioned, in 2024, the worst emitting 20% have to take action. So those are 10,000 buildings that need to reduce carbon below a cap in 2024. And then in 2030, 75% of the worst emitting buildings have to meet a more stringent cap. So that means 37,500 buildings are going to have to take action. Those are the two camps that building owners are in right now. If they're in the 2024 camp, they're looking at, okay, what do we need to do now from a capital planning cycle? If they're in the 2030 camp, they're focusing on grid policies and grid issues, as you mentioned, and have a little bit longer time to think about how they get the strategies that they put in place to get to the carbon caps.
0: And yeah, I think one of the, like I mentioned at the top of the show, kind of one of the coolest things about this law is I think there's going to be a lot of innovative solutions, particularly for these larger commercial building owners. You know, I think you're going to see leases restructured. I think people are going to start rethinking the tenant landlord relationship and maybe view it more as a partnership and how they can kind of solve these problems together. And really what I've been you know, thinking about it for a long time is how do you crack that tenant landlord split incentive? And I think there are people are going to come up with some pretty innovative solutions. I know you've mentioned the creation of a carbon credit trading system. Is that realistic? And how would that work? I actually think
1: carbon trading for buildings is the secret sauce that's going to make this law work. Urban Green is uh, responsible for getting that provision in local law 97. And what that provision says is that the city is required to do a study and implementation plan for carbon trading. And that study with its recommendations are due in just a few months in January. So it's well underway. We are leading the stakeholder convening for the mayor's office on that study. And this builds on work that we already did. So um, over a year ago, we formed the world's first and only five city global collaboration on this where we partnered with Hong Kong, Singapore, London, and Toronto to look at how carbon trading could work initially for New York, but then for any city around the world. This led to a report that we released early this summer called Trading. And that report identifies 11 big structural design questions that need to be resolved for carbon trading to work in any city. And then under those, we identified 59 policy options, a menu of options that cities um, could consider. We need it in New York for the main reason that a carbon cap penalizes density, uh, which is counterintuitive uh, to sustainable design. You know, you can have a very energy efficient building in New York, and we do. We have thousands and thousands of them. We have lead platinum skyscrapers that use energy very, very efficiently. But you can never get around the fact that if 8,000 people work in that building, that building is just gonna use a lot of energy. And so we have hundreds and hundreds of buildings that will never meet the cap because of their density. And so we have to give them a compliance path. Right now, those buildings would just pay a fine. And I get it. If you're out of compliance, you pay a fine. But if you pay a fine, you don't get the carbon reduction and we need the carbon reduction. And so instead of paying a fine, I'd rather that building owner pay another building to go below the cap. And that's what carbon trading is all about. The concept is not new. Cap and trade is not new. But as a city level policy tool for buildings related to climate change, it's actually revolutionary. And so we're working very hard on the concept in New York to make it work. And we're also working very hard around the world to introduce the concept to other cities.
0: And I think that's a really good example of the difference between, you know, measuring efficiency and measuring emissions, because those very dense buildings that are operating really efficiently, that's kind of the goal for an energy efficiency program. But like you mentioned, they could be dinged because uh, of their density. So it is an interesting consequence there. Are you seeing this idea kind of percolate in other cities? I know not in this country, but maybe around the world? Or is this going to be the first of its kind in New York? We have a
1: great first test case in Tokyo. Tokyo is the first city that enacted a, a cap and trade system for buildings. The designer of the Tokyo program was on the urban green convening. And so we've learned from them. And in fact, we, we hosted the, a delegation last year from the city of Tokyo uh, in our office to do a deep dive uh, comparison of their law. Their law covers a thousand buildings. Our law covers 50,000 buildings their law has a much longer implementation time horizon than ours and so there's only very few trades have actually started yet in tokyo but it's a great test case for us to learn from beyond tokyo there really isn't anything at scale and so we are you know breaking new ground here so we you know we have to get it right but i think we will get it right and when we do get it right it's going to be you know, a test case for any city in the world to think about uh, for carbon reduction.
0: It's gonna be really interesting to see how kind of plays out. And I think, you know, we've talked about building owners, we've talked about the city, but what can we in industry do to help? There are a lot of proven energy efficient technologies already on the market. We talked about the difference between emissions and efficiency. But do you think that building owners can comply in 2024 and in 2030 with what's currently available on the market? Or are we waiting for something else to really help them?
1: I think industry can help in three ways. First is through education and awareness. Those 50,000 buildings that are going to be subject to carbon caps, I can guarantee you not all 50,000 buildings know that today. (laughs) So, you know, we need more education and awareness of the market transformation about to happen uh, in New York City. And industry can play a big role in that because industry is in with those building owners every day. And so uh, that's, that's step one. Um, step two is, yes, we need new technologies. We need technologies that are going to more cost efficiently get us lower carbon emissions. And there's a big incentive for that. You know, We did a market study on this to say, okay, if building owners choose energy efficiency alone to comply with this law, what would happen to the retrofit market in New York? Well, as it turns out, based on our estimates, a $20 billion retrofit market will be created by 2030. That will be the largest retrofit market in the United States. And although the data isn't kept globally, you know, I have a pretty good view of of the global markets. I happen to think it's going to be the largest retrofit market in the world. We are publishing that data because we want the market to react to it. We want the market to see that there is a new opportunity here. So the technology that's in the garages, we want it to come forward, or the technology that's in the Danfoss Labs, we want it to come forward because there's going to be a market unlike we haven't seen before. And so we want that technology to come forward. The third thing that industry can help building owners with is something we haven't even talked about yet, but an entire new Transition we need in our heating sector. So, we've been talking about grid emissions so far, and that's really important. But 40% of all of New York City's carbon emissions come from burning fossil fuels at the building. 40%. So, that's for heat and hot water, primarily for steam heat. 40%, that's greater than all transportation sources combined. And so we have to tackle this market too, and it's through an issue called electrification, where we have to take those devices off of burning fossil fuels and plug them into the grid with the hope and the faith that the grid will be greener over time, which it will. And so that's a huge transition. We need industry support with that, again, with education and awareness, but also in ways that that transition can occur in a cost-effective and technology-enabled way.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting about this law is that, you know, we've talked about on the show the other kind of decarbonization laws around the country, and most of them involve these natural gas bans in California, some in on the East Coast, too. Um, And we've seen pushback to those in some other places. And we've talked about how those laws could lead to a transition to heat pumps away from natural gas boilers and, and things like that. But I actually think that a law like Local Law 97 is going to make that transition happen much faster than any natural gas ban could and a lot smoother too and really operate with more market forces and some of these natural gas bands. So I know that, um, you know, Danfoss, we're working actively on our heat pump technology and trying to bring it to market with our OEM partners and New York is one of the top markets for it because of Local Law 97. There's so many boilers in all of these big commercial buildings, big multifamily buildings and, and I think the opportunity is really there to electrify all those and make them so much more efficient and really tackle the problem that way. So I do think the technology is available. And you're right, it's just a question of bringing it to market, getting the education out there and really um, having a mechanism to do that. And I think Local Law 97 is kind of the perfect opportunity to make that happen. You know, I touched on the building owners and tenants and the split incentive that they've traditionally have and how it's a barrier to big retrofit opportunities. Do you think that this law is going to force them to work more closely together? Uh, You know, what's that relationship going to look like in the next 10 years?
1: Yeah, it will have to. I mean, I respect it. There are lease issues that are built in barriers to having these discussions. You know, if a lease says to a, you know, a tenant signs a lease or a tenant demands a lease that says, I want my office at, you know, 72 degrees, 24 seven, and the building owner knows that on Sunday there is nobody in the office because they contract occupancy. Yet contractually they're required to deliver, you know, air to that office at 72 degrees. You know, we have to evolve to a, a more sophisticated conversation between the tenant and the owner so that the owner has the opening to say to the tenant, look at you're not in the office on Sundays. Why am I delivering you this air? I actually think carbon trading could be a way to do this because it under that scenario, the owner could go to the tenant and say, you know what, how about we don't deliver conditioned air to your office or it's not 72, maybe it's 77. And I'll be able to reduce carbon emissions. And if I can get below the cap, I'll share the monetization of that with you. So that's a powerful market force to help overcome the split incentive so that owners and tenants can work together collectively to reduce uh, carbon emissions, because that's the only way it's going to happen. If you think of a building owner today in a typical commercial office, the building owner controls, uh, I don't know, somewhere around 20% of the building's energy. The other 80% is controlled by the tenant through the lease. Um, And so there's only so much the building owner can do on their own. So I do sympathize with them in the sense that they have some big hurdles to overcome to reduce carbon. But at the end of the day, the way this law works is they are solely responsible for the reduction of that carbon. And so the only way this can work is if those conversations can begin.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think I saw a study somewhere where, you know, in a commercial lease, all of the uh, expenses for the, the tenant, the electricity or the utility bill was like one thirteenth of the total charge. So or 5%, something like that. It was a small percentage. So it's not something that's particularly valuable to the tenant and something that's very valuable to the landlord. So I think there is something, there's a lot of ways it could go. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the innovation is going to be going forward there. But uh, you know, it's the end of September in 2020. I would be remiss if I did not ask you about how COVID-19 is impacting New York City, the real estate industry, and this law, are building owners managing these two competing challenges, COVID plus local law 97, and how do you think COVID will affect compliance with this law going forward?
1: Well, yeah, we are at a um, challenging time in the history of the world, the country, and certainly in the history of New York City, particularly when it comes to real estate and buildings. So the last data I saw is that uh, about 20 to 30% of uh, office buildings are occupied in New York today. So we still have a large population of employers that are working remotely. Interestingly to the conversation we just had, the building occupancy is down 80 to 90%, but the energy use is only down 30%. But while the occupancy is down, this is giving building owners a couple of opportunities. One is to really learn their buildings, to understand that dynamic about, okay, why hasn't energy dropped with occupancy? And so this is a great educational moment from that perspective. It's also a moment to do work in buildings if people aren't there. And so I know some building owners are taking advantage of lower occupancy to actually start some work for Local 97. and and other upgrades that are needed but you know at the end of the day we have to find a way to make our buildings healthy and we have to find a way to meet local law 97 at the same time you know we can't compromise health for the climate and we can't compromise climate for health and so the two may not actually work together but we're going to have to find a way to make that happen technology can help with that so that we can accomplish Both challenges and meet both challenges successfully.
0: Yeah, and I think they are not necessarily competing, but you know, it's kind of like after Sandy, the difference between resiliency and efficiency and kind of how that's playing out. And they're not necessarily the same, but uh, they're not that different either. So I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, these two kind of competing interests play out over time. But you know, wrapping up here, I know. There are a lot of other cities around the world and around this country that are probably looking at Local Law 97 and seeing how it plays out. Have you heard of other places passing similar building emissions laws, and, and do you think this type of system can work in places other than in New York City?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think many cities are looking at what they can do. I think the pandemic has slowed everything down for cities to act, but cities can act, and I think cities are recognizing that they can act and that cities can actually lead on climate. You know, we're talking about buildings, John, and you and I were both active in the public affairs space in my previous career and your current career with the Department of Energy in the United States, et cetera. The irony here is, you know, some people lament that there hasn't been federal action on climate, but when it comes to buildings, the federal government has no purview over buildings, but cities do. And so uh, if you look at large urban centers, And the ability to reduce carbon emissions, it's about buildings and the federal government doesn't have as big a role as the city does itself. And so this is the time for cities to act. And we hope that Local Law 97 shows that and provides pathways and motivations for for other cities to look at their climate emissions as well.
0: Yeah. And that's such a great point. I I think that cities really do have to lead here. Even if the federal government were leading, it would still be up to cities to try to make something happen, particularly in the building sector. Well, that is a great place to end. And John, I really want to thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to see how this all plays out in New York City. And as a new member of Urban Green, I'm really excited to see how Urban Green takes a role in shaping the New York City retrofit market. Um, Thanks for joining
1: us. Well, thanks for having me on the show, John, and thanks for supporting and joining Urban Green. We certainly welcome the Dan Foss company to uh, our family and our stakeholders uh, for how we can not only improve um, New York
0: City, but how
1: we can make a difference around the world.
0: Yeah, I'm excited about it. Well, that's it for another episode of the Envisioneering Exchange. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, John Mandyke, for joining us, and please don't forget to subscribe to Envisioneering Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. Again, my name is John Sheff. Dan Foss is Director of Public and Industry Affairs, and thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.
2: This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisionary Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other website. website, computer, or playing device.